0: Could you start by introducing yourself?
1: Yeah, my name is Bruce Pascoe. Um, I'm a Ewan, Panlapana, and Bunrong man. Uh, our heritage goes from Tasmania uh, to the south coast of New South Wales.
0: Mm. And. You're an author. You've written over your life uh, mostly novels, but uh, quite notably in the last few years you wrote a history book, Dark Emu. What was the inspiration of moving into the the realm of non-fiction?
1: Well, it was uh, the fact that I couldn't find any Australian histories which described the experience of my own family. And um, so I decided I would have to a history which talked about how aboriginal people actually experienced colonialism
0: and as part of this history it involves digging up i guess elements of aboriginal culture that haven't been covered in history before some of the the technology and the agriculture techniques and things like this that were a part of aboriginal life but have been not recorded by traditional historians is that right
1: that's right. I, um, I wrote a book on the contact wars of Australia before Dark Emu called Convincing Ground. And the information I was finding out there, while not particularly relevant to the uh, contact wars, were really disturbing me because they were talking about what uh, explorers and um, Australian farming pioneers, so-called pioneers, were witnessing of um, Aboriginal people's land use. And so much of it was a complete culture shock to me. Um, I was ashamed, uh, as an Aboriginal person, not to have known this. So I was finding out about Aboriginal people uh, tilling land that was so vast it reached to the horizon, uh, stooking and harvesting grain that... Uh, Stooks of which went across country for nine miles All of these things which just didn't fit with the hunter-gatherer myth That we'd been told by our forefathers and our educators So I was more or less um, stuck with having to write that book
0: So you, you said that it was almost by accident you came across this in the accounts of early settlers Was it difficult finding this information?
1: No, that's the that's the shameful thing. Um, it's all on the public record. And most of the things I found out, you can walk into your local library and find out because they're in the major explorers' journals. Uh, there were some other things which um, I had to dig a little deeper for. But even if you just read the explorers' journals, that information's there. Uh, the two examples I gave you are in Mitchell and Sturt. And and the thing that really worried me was that I wasn't the first person to, to have read these accounts. So other people had read them before me and not considered those facts significant for Australia. Um, I think perhaps my advantage was that I was looking at it from an Aboriginal point of view, so it did interest me anyway. But it's still depressing to think of all those professors that went before me reading those things and not seeing it being of any interest to uh, Australia you know our history as taught to me when I was at school and university was pretty boring you know you get enough of wheat wool and gold and uh, you know this other information would have been fascinating and when I start when I talk to young Australians about it between the ages of five and 25, they're fascinated because they didn't know it. It's interesting stuff in its own right. It talks about human development that goes back a long, long time, long, longer than any other place on Earth. And naturally, people are interested in it because it talks to them about the human experience, the human history. And um, I'm just glad that we're now starting to have that conversation.
0: You said that for you, as an Aboriginal person, you'd never heard this before and it was new information. Is that the case for for most Aboriginal people across Australia, that these histories are are lost even to them, or are there some places that have a memory of...?
1: Most people, most Aboriginal people didn't know this stuff because they'd had an Australian education and they'd lived under Australian political rules. So you don't find out these things because the whole myth of the colonisation is against you being able to uh, learn these things. So since I've been speaking about it though, Aboriginal people have contacted me, um, and that, this happened after convincing ground as well, because I, I learned a lot about massacres that had never been recorded, and w- including one that's, you know, an hour and a half drive from where I live, which involved members of my own family. Uh, and that was very disturbing. To know that I was living on a country that had that experience for my own family was very disturbing. But Aboriginal people started writing to me before and after Dark Emu come out with incredible information about how our people managed the land and how we managed crops and how we managed food production, how we managed food preservation and food storage. And these things you just don't hear about in uh, years one and two at university you know and we ought to it's australian history and our young people ought to know these things and it shouldn't be hidden from them and it has been deliberately hidden from them
0: what are the implications for aboriginal people now learning this information
1: well i'm i'm very very impressed by young australians and i'm very impressed by young aboriginal australians too and these are people who are more likely to be worried about plastics in the ocean uh, degradation of the sea and degradation of the land and more worried about what we're doing to refugees so these people both black and white are interested in these ideas from a social justice point of view so It's a refreshing conversation for someone as old as me um, to have this kind of discussion with young Australians because my own generation is pretty hopeless and, you know, to be cheered up at this end of my life.
0: Um, We're speaking with Bruce Pascoe, author of the book Dark Emu. Let's go back to that interview. You said that it's been deliberately hidden, these ideas... Obviously, uh, it was in the interests of pastoralists and things like that to not say that the the land had previously been worked by somebody else. What what do you think are the forces behind this uh, hiding of history?
1: Greed. Land greed. And land greed is the thing that has devastated the world. Aboriginal people have been here for 120,000 years, and in that time, we developed a law... Which everybody would get fed, everybody would have a house, and everybody would take part in the culture. And when they're old, they'd be looked after. And that land war was forbidden. That's the the culture that began. We don't know when, uh, but sometime around a hundred thousand years ago, and it was picked up by the new generation every year. Every generation readopted this law, and that's incredible because the rest of the world was in chaos and turmoil with one king uh, assassinating another king um one queen having another queen's head cut off all of this kind of rubbish which is all about greed it's not about justice it's not about law not about looking after the people it's about ambition and here we have young aboriginal people adopting the law that their forefathers set down and i'm sure that it was done because of the intrinsic fairness. How could you argue with a law which said that everybody would be treated equally? It's the longest lived uh, social development on earth and was probably the first where people began to live together and make laws together uh, in an organised way. And Australia doesn't think about these things, but I think it's vital. This is probably our greatest export, the export of generosity
0: and peace. Do you think that Dark Emu uh, contributes to Australia's notion of national identity by shining a light on a bit of our pre-colonial history?
1: Yeah, it certainly does. Um, I speak to so many Australians, both black and white, who say the book changed their life. Well, it changed my bloody life too. Um, It's had an enormous impact on me um, and not all of it positive, because I'm running around like a hairy goat all over the country, um, and it's impacted on, on me, but I can't withdraw from this battle. Um, this is a gentle battle, but I can't withdraw from it, because it's my responsibility now. And the story came to me out of the ground. It wasn't didn't come out of my own genius, because if it had come out of my own genius, I would have thought of it. I would have challenged the things that my teachers told me, but I didn't, because I've got only normal intelligence. But when I started reading these things, at the behest of my elders, and from an Aboriginal point of view, it changed everything. They're the only two things that are different. And, yeah, sure, people come up to me with tears in their eyes and say the book changed their life. And I say, well, this great land changed both our lives.
0: There has been a a response. It seems like it's grown steadily in the years since the the book came out a couple of years ago, Uh, the the notoriety and the influence of the book. Is that how you felt it developing?
1: Yeah, it's totally word of mouth. The book virtually had no publicity. Uh, It's come out of one of the smaller publishing houses in Australia, an Aboriginal publishing house, which has had trouble getting traction for its books. But this book has been built by word of mouth and a lot of it is due to young people. It's young people who ring me up, who email me, who send the book on to each other um, and they're the promoters of these ideas.
0: Have you seen the dance inspired by the book by Bangara Dance Company? What did you think of
1: it? Oh, look, I loved that. I loved the whole experience. I loved it when Stephen Page said he was going to do it. I couldn't believe that he was going to do it. I didn't know how he was going to do it. We had, you know, quite a few meetings with the dancers and with Stephen and the choreographers and all of that. And they kept on saying to me, what do you think? And I say, well, look, um, you're the dancers, you're the choreographers, I'm a writer, you know. Um, I don't care what you do, just honour the book. And I know you will because um, every other thing you've ever done, you know, I've, I've seen every Bangara dance, every time they've honoured the culture and enthralled Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians all around the country and overseas. I knew they'd do a good job, so I was just on a bloody picnic, really, and I took my daughter and granddaughter to see the show, and there was a little bit of free champagne. You know, what's not to like about it?
0: (laughs) Some of the things that I've seen you say imply that you've had some trouble with, I guess, academia about some of the ideas in the book. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, well, I was taken to task by some well-meaning academics who thought that I was trying to pull the wool over Australia, trying to exaggerate Aboriginal performance and achievement. And um, it it inspired me, actually, because I was on a track and I was writing essays and telling these stories to anyone who would listen. Um, But when I was upbraided and wrapped on the knuckles by Australia's senior academics, um, I thought, righto, you know, the gloves are off now, um, let's have a go. And so I I then really devoted myself for five years to the research. And so I've got to thank those people because they, they turned it into a much better book than it would have been if I'd been left to my own resources, but they inspired me because I realised how pernicious this inability to read the history had been. They weren't bad people at all. They gave me a really good cup of tea. They gave me a lovely bit of cake. Uh, they were very kind. They weren't, you know, Tony Abbott in any way, um, but they'd had an Australian education, just the same education I'd had, but somehow rather. They hadn't looked at the the documents that we'd all read in the same way that I'd looked at them. And I I had this advantage in that my elders had been disgusted by my ignorance of Australian history, their history, and they had been so patient with me over 20 years. Over 20 years, they put up with my stupidity, the way I clung to what I'd been taught, because when I was a university graduate, I thought I knew everything. Um, I thought, you know, I, I felt kind of apologetic for Aboriginal Australia to a certain extent. And they just persisted and persisted and eventually the light went on and I could see that I would have to write the history of Australia that they wanted and that my family wanted and told from an Aboriginal point of view. So I blame my grandmother because she kept on buying me books when I was a child made me read, and she was the one who made me go to school because I didn't really like school at all, and um, I did anything to get out of it, including running away with my dog several times. Uh, my grandmother straightened me out.
0: We have been talking with Bruce Pascoe, author of the book Dark Emu, about uh, Aboriginal civilisation before colonisation, and also a bit about the experience of writing that book and entering into the public realm with a, a controversial opinion. Let's go to the last part of my chat with Bruce Pascoe. So since the the book's come out, I mean, there's been, I suppose, controversy from predictable elements, conservative elements, but has there been much issue around the facts in the book?
1: No. Um, a few people have... Uh, queried, um, you know, details in the book like where was Sturt exactly on this particular day, things like that. And I, you know, I, I was actually wrong on, in one of those cases. I, I'd written down the coordinates incorrectly. But, um, I know that, you know, the conservative elements have had a go, but I haven't read it. You know, someone said to me the other day, oh, you know, those people had a bit of a crack at you a few years back. Well, I didn't read it, and I'm not going to read it. You know, I'm just not interested in that argument. It's a dead argument. You know, it's done and dusted. let's get on with being a real country and, um, you know, really honouring our land. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about looking after the land, and we've done our very best to destroy this land, and uh, now is the time for people to come together and really treat the country like it was Australia and not as if it was Kent with all the terrain and rich soil. We've got to love our mother and respect her and not be ashamed that she's not as fertile as England, not as fertile as the Great Plains of America. She is who she is. And she provided very, very well for people over the longest period of time on earth. We've got to respect that. She can do it again. She wants to do it again as long as we look after her and keep her health good because we're trying to destroy the poor old girl.
0: You're a, a writer and a historian, but also in recent years you, you've you tried to put some of this into practice and farm some native yams. How's that process yeah. going?
1: Well, look, it, it's going as well as you could expect for a man with no money. Um, I've been trying to get those government departments, you know, whose heart bleed for Aboriginal people and want Aboriginal people to have jobs and they want them to be off the dole and they want them to do this and want them to do that. And I said, here's a chance to employ Aboriginal people. Uh, Just give us a chance. Well, of course, no money was forthcoming because it was all hot air. It was all hard-on-sleeve stuff and no hand-in-pocket stuff. So we're doing it on our own. Um, I bought a run-down poor old farm that had been overstocked and abused. And um, gradually I've got some crops planted. I've de-stocked the place of hard hoofed animals. And as a result... country has come back incredibly and i'm gradually converting it to australian crops uh, with the help of my son and family local aboriginal people we're um we're getting somewhere it takes a long time like just before i spoke to you you know i had a water problem um you know the sort of thing you that happens to you when you you know your plumbing's half arsed, you know because you haven't got any money to do it properly i will do it properly but i you know when i did it i didn't have the money to do it I just needed water in a hurry and so now's the time to repair what I did before. I'd love to do everything properly once but, you know, I didn't have the money in those early days and I still don't have it but at least I'm I'm getting somewhere, I suppose.
0: Do you see a potential as a commercial crop of native yams or other things that Aboriginal people had once farmed?
1: Yeah, my oath. Um, we're, we're getting so much interest from bakers and restaurateurs and airlines they want this food you know, Australia has changed its mind and it wasn't changed by the 60 year olds and the 70 year olds it was changed by the 30 and 40 year olds you know, the people who are now in charge of restaurants and airlines and um, bakeries they're the people who you know, for them it's just a no brainer why aren't we growing Australian grains? You know, that, and that Australian grains don't produce as heavily as um, wheat and barley and things like that, but their advantage is they're perennial. They sequester carbon in the soil as a result. And being Australian, they love Australia. They love the amount of water they get from us. They love the fertility of the soil. Um, they can't see anything wrong with Australia. They want to grow here, whereas wheat you know you have to look after it like it's a whinging bomb um because it is used to luxury and we bring it over here and the poor old thing has to struggle its guts out and we have to support it with extra fertilizer extra water we can't afford that anymore we've proven that um you know flogging the country and then pouring on phosphate is not the way to go with our agriculture we've got to look after this old girl and Um, You know, she had these plants. She nurtured these plants. Aboriginal people domesticated these plants and that's the future.
0: All right. Thanks very much, Bruce. Uh, Anything else you want to leave us with?
1: Just look after the country. Um, You know, don't despair. Think of the whales and uh, think of all those long-haired hippies that got such bad press who are absolutely responsible for the return of these whales coming up and down our coast now. Without them... And without the opprobrium they survived from older Australians um, and other, other nations in the world, uh, without them we would have lost our whales. So there's your inspiration. And uh, all of those long-haired hippies were young. They weren't 60 and 70-year-old. The people who did the hard work, who put up with the water cannons, who went out to sea in the Southern Oceans and that. They're all young, and I have a hell of a respect for them.
0: All right. Thanks very much, Bruce.
1: Good on you.